I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is God's word. Thanks, Pete. Uh, well, this is going to be one of those sermons where I start with The Bachelor. There's probably about three or four every year. This is going to be one, but I'm not going to stay out too long, don't worry. Uh, the Bachelor was on not too long ago, and, and as usual, I got very excited. Not because of The Bachelor itself, but because a series of The Bachelor means a new uh, series of Rosie's Reviews. Anyone ever read Rosie's Reviews of The Bachelor? Oh, you're missing out if you haven't. Like, The, the Bachelor, it's great, like, it's, per- it's awesome TV. This, Rosie's reviews of The Bachelor are far better than the actual episodes. In fact, you don't really need to watch a show. Just read Rosie's reviews. Rosie Waterland is a, a blogger. She blogs for MamaMia.com. Uh, excellent writer. Very funny. Very insightful. Uh, and But apart from um, her reviews of The Bachelor, which are fantastic, uh, she also is um, yeah, writes other stuff as well. And so I, after reading her reviews, I thought, I'm going to go check out what else she's done. And as I did, I found uh, a post, a blog that she wrote titled, uh, How Do You Make Friends as an Adult? Actually, there's also an expletive in there, which I have edited for our younger viewers. Uh, How do you make friends as an adult? Basically, in this this review, uh, in this blog, uh, she uh, makes the observation that when you're a kid, making friends is easy, right? Uh, You go to school, there are other kids around you. They just become friends, just by mere proximity, pretty much, it seems. Uh, but then you grow up and you leave school and you leave university and then suddenly you find actually making friends is actually quite difficult. Like one of the things that happens is that uh, your, your friendship, your peer group from uh, university or high school tends to move away, they get jobs elsewhere. And for some people you can suddenly find that even though you once had some great close friends that suddenly they're, they're just not around anymore. And so uh, this is what happened to Rosie. She found that she was uh, spending most of her nights alone in her apartment eating pizza out of the box and watching television. Probably The Bachelor. Um, 
And she doesn't s- exactly say it in this article, but it's heavily implied uh, that this just this isn't enough. This she is not living a fulfilled life. There is something missing. What's missing for her is deep, real connection with other people. She wants it. She cr- she craves it, but she finds that she doesn't have the tools to create it. Uh, it looks like Rosie isn't alone in this. I read another article in The Age that said that uh, about one-third of Aussies uh, say that they have experienced deep loneliness, deep disconnection at some point in their lives. This is a quote from this article. Uh, Superficial connections, looking at our phones instead of each other and living in a largely online world where functionality and efficiency reign over friendliness and any depth of engagement all mean we can have others around externally and still feel internally isolated. What it's basically saying is that you could be surrounded by people and yet deeply disconnected. You don't have to be a Christian to know that humans are by nature designed as relational beings. We We need relationship to live healthy and and fulfilled lives. And this is not just relating. I mean, you relate when you say hi to the postman in the morning. That's a relating. I'm talking about relationship, a deep, lasting connection with another human. But one of the main themes of the Bible story is actually relationship. The Bible upholds the, the goodness of deep, lasting Relationships. It says that they are something beautiful, they are something true, they're something to be treasured if possessed, and something to be grieved if they are lost. And it's this theme that Jesus picks up in John chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, remain in me as I also remain in you. So we're going to talk about uh, true relationships today. Uh, from this passage. And, and I've got to say, I'm not going to be able to hit everything in this passage. It's a big one and there's a lot in it. I encourage you to go home and read it for yourself. You'll find many other things. Uh, but here's what I want to pick up today. I want to talk about the pattern of true relationships, the fruit of true relationships, and the power of true relationships. Have you got that? Three points, as usual. The pattern, the fruit, and the power. All right, let's talk a- about the pattern first, the pattern of true relationships. Uh, let's jump into John 15, verse 1. Um, follow along with me. Jesus says uh, this uh, stunning kind of statement. He says, I am the true vine. Now, throughout the, the bu- uh, book of John, he's been saying, I am this. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. I am uh, the way. He's these I am statements. This is the last one that he does in this book. And he says, what I am the vine. Now, from an outsider point of view, you might say, this is a strange description. Why would Jesus describe himself uh, as a plant, uh, as a vine? That's kind of weird. Why is he kind of going into this suddenly, uh, this gardening metaphor? How is Jesus like a plant? How is he like a vine? The disciples actually wouldn't have thought this was strange at all. I'm, I suspect that they would have picked up immediately what Jesus was talking about. Because they knew their Old Testament, right? They were good Jews. They, they knew their Bible, knew their Old Testament. And so they knew that, that the vine was an illustration used throughout the Old Testament by God 
to talk about the nation of Israel. Israel, in many times, was, was called the vine. The main one, uh, the main reference from this is Psalm 80, which Chris read out before. Here we see vine is a symbol uh, for Israel. And God is pictured as the gardener who transplants the vine out of Egypt, where they were enslaved, into, into a new land, into a new soil. And there God lovingly, uh, tenderly cares for the vine, helps it to grow and flourish and thrive. But what happens is, well, it's the vine of Israel, its branches are spread throughout. As much as it gains foliage and, and looks healthy, what, what we also find is that it doesn't bear fruit. There is no grapes. For all its impressive growth, it actually hasn't produced anything. What this is saying is that Israel didn't actually live up to its calling. Instead of being a place of holiness and hostility and, and justice and love for God and love for others, it became a center of idol worship and injustice and religious pride. And so uh, it says that God punished Israel. So Psalm 80 uh, is a prayer for God, the great gardener, to again replant and tend Israel, his vine. Look at verses uh, 14 to 17. Uh, the psalmist prays, Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. And we can't miss that the psalmist here, he's, he uses the illustration of the vine and then he switches. From a vine to a son. Still talking about Israel. Israel is God's vine. Israel is also God's son. So with that in the background, now when Jesus says to his disciples, I am the true vine, what's he saying? He's saying, I am the true Israel. I am the true vine. I am the true son. I am the true Israel. While Israel fell drastically short of its calling, to be a nation of love for God and love for others. Jesus now perfectly embodies everything that Israel was meant to be in himself. He becomes the, the epitome of the, the Son of God, the, the true Son, the true vine. He is the vine that flourishes and bears fruit, and he is the Son who is perfectly obedient to his Father. Okay, so we've got to ask, what's this got to do with relationships? Well, actually, it's got everything to do with relationships. As Jesus is saying, if you want to experience a true relationship with God, if you want to know true spirituality, if you want deep connection that runs deeper than anything can have with a human being, then you have to be connected to me. And the vine illustration works perfectly for this. Have a look at verses, uh, uh, verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown to the fire, and burned. Okay, this word remain is really important. 
It doesn't mean just like hanging around somewhere for an extended period of time. Uh, This word uh, used in the rest of the New Testament almost always means to go and stay in someone's house. So Jesus said to Zacchaeus, I I want to go and remain in your house and have dinner with you, enjoy your hospitality. Uh, In many other places, this is what it means. So in those days, staying in someone's house was a big deal. It's not like just coming around for a barbecue for a few hours and then going. Or It doesn't mean like an Airbnb kind of th- arrangement. If you go and stay in someone's house in the days of Jesus, it meant that you were being accepted as part of that family. Okay. For the time that you were there, you lived there. You, everything that that family had was yours, and, and presumably the other way around as well. You, you participated in the household. So to remain is an is a, incredibly relational term means to become part of a family. It means to, to live there. So when Jesus says, remain in me, what he means is, come and live in me. Come and be with me. Come and be part of this family. Be utterly connected to me. Uh, to Enjoy everything that I am and everything that I have. Jesus then takes this one step further. He says, remain in me as I also remain in you. This is an incredible promise. Like Almost all religions dictate that to get to God, we have to drag ourselves up by our good works, try and, and reach up to heaven in some way. Christianity is utterly different. It says, no, I'm going to... Jesus, as God, says, I'm going to come and remain in you. I'm going to come down from heaven. And I'm going to come and live with you. I'm going to dwell with you. So this relationship is what we might call uh, mutual self-giving. Okay? Jesus gives all he has to us by remaining in us. And we give all that we are to him by remaining in him. Everything we have for him, everything he has for us. We possess him. He possesses us. And this is incredible. The king of the universe who made everything and owns everything offers us a relationship of incredible intimacy. Incredible intimacy and incredible blessing. And this is the relationship with Jesus that he wants us to cultivate. Him and us. Us in him. But what exactly is this like? Like... We might ask Jesus, well, that, that sounds okay, but is it really that great? Well, Jesus tells us how great it is. He goes deeper. And Jesus says, well, this relationship I'm talking about, this isn't some arbitrary thing I want for you. This is something that I have enjoyed for eternity. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. In other words, he's saying the very same love that that Jesus shares with the Father is the love that he also shares with us. Because God the Father and God the Son for all of eternity have poured perfect holy love into each other's hearts. Love and affection for each other perfectly and completely. Listen to this quote. The Father and his Son before the world were made spent countless ages rejoicing in each other's presence. Think for a moment how the Father loves Jesus. We're told that they have spent all beginningless eternity pouring love and pleasure and glory into each other's hearts to degrees of depth and power which we cannot imagine. 
It's incredible to imagine that what Jesus is saying is that this very love which he shares with the Father is the same love that he now pours into us through faith, those who believe. And the Holy Spirit embodies that love between the Father and the Son. And that same Holy Spirit now makes real that love between the Son and His people, His church. So this is the pattern of true relationships. Loving, selfless, giving towards each other. The pattern is set by the Trinity in the relationship of the Father and Son, each of them perfectly, selflessly giving to each other, and is then extended to include the relationship that, uh, of all Christians with Jesus. So if God himself, this is what he's saying, if, if God himself is, this, is a pattern, is the model, and is the source of the best sort of relationship, and Jesus himself then extends that same pattern to us as the church, then Jesus uh, is this has to be the source of real relationship. You cannot have real relationship. You cannot have real life. You cannot have real connection unless you are connected to the source, to the, to the true vine, to Jesus. And unless you are attached to the true vine, then everything's kind of worthless. You, you're like a branch that's disconnected from the vine. You just kind of die and you end up being thrown onto the rubbish dump. Without connection with Jesus, there is no real life, health, or connection. However, those who are, do remain in Jesus, those who are connected, say they, they bear much fruit. And so my second point is, what is the fruit of true relationship? Okay, remember I- Israel's problem? Um, it was a vine that didn't produce fruit, Right? Why didn't it produce fruit? Because it lost its connection from the life of God. They moved away from the worship of God. They planted themselves in the worship of idols. And idols don't give life. They're, they're nothing. They have nothing to give. So Israel slowly rotted from the inside. Jesus is a new Israel who always produces fruit. Why? Because his roots are in God himself because he is God himself. He is the vine that cannot die, will never decay, and cannot help to grow. And so it's incredible then that the, the illustration of the vine, Jesus says that he is the vine, but we are the branches. What do the branches do? Well, they bear fruit for the vine. The ink, the, so, so tightly is the connection between Jesus the vine and the church's branches, that it can be very well said that when Jesus bears fruit, he bears it through us. And that's why he says in verse 8, that this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. How does Jesus bring glory to his own Father? When we bear fruit. And we can only bear fruit when we remain in him. But what is that fruit? Uh, How do you know a true disciple? We know a true disciple, a true Christian, by their fruit. What exactly is that fruit we're talking about? Well, there are lots that we could talk about in the New Testament, but Jesus brings it back to three in this passage. The first fruit is a desire to obey Jesus' commands. Verse 10, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and remain in his love. Now, when, when my 
marriage with Jackie is healthy, what happens is I, I love to do things to please her. Even if they're inconvenient for me, even if they're kind of a bit annoying or time-consuming, it doesn't matter. Like when a marriage is healthy, I just love to please her. I love to love her. But what happens is sometimes our relationship isn't so great. And when it's not so great, those very same things become a bit tedious, become a bit annoying. When we are disconnected from Jesus as the true vine, his commands become obligation. They became just the things that we have to do because, oh, well, if I don't do it, maybe God will be angry with me or won't accept me. The motivation completely changes. And at worst, his commands become offensive. We go, well, that's ridiculous, Jesus. I can't, couldn't possibly do that. But when we are connected to the true vine, when we remain in him, we love to obey him. We actually have a desire to obey him. We find ourselves treasuring him so much that obeying him becomes a joyful delight. Not an obligation, but a joy. So a real disciple is known by how they obey Jesus in all of life because they're connected to the vine. Second fruit. Second fruit is a deep, permeating, relentless joy. Verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. What exactly is joy? Well, joy, it includes happiness. That's probably the, the word we often use. But it's more than that. It's deeper than happiness. Joy is a deep satisfaction and contentment that comes from a profound trust in God and a, and a deep trust that you are doing what you are meant to be doing, what you're designed to be doing. Jesus exhibited that, per, that sort of joy, right? Throughout his life, he basically said, I, I know who I am, I know who my Father is, and I, I love to be with him. And I know my mission, I know my purpose, even though it's going to be really hard, even to the cross. This is great joy that he has and exhibits. Jesus says that when we remain in him, that very joy that he has, we get as well. It's a natural f- outflowing from him, is real joy. Even when life brings up trials and tribulations, even when things are terribly hard, we have this ability as Christians to go, this is real, this is not fake, it's not a mirage, it really is hard. And yet I feel this deep joy, this deep joy and trust that God loves me, is going to get me through this, he's going to teach me something through this. You, you build this resilience that is incredible. We begin to feel this inner joy. It doesn't really make sense sometimes, but often you see it in older saints who have, who have kind of traveled this road of discipleship for many decades, and they kind of have this glow about them. You ask them about their life, and actually it's full of hardships. It wasn't all uh, milk and sugar. But they have this uh, a life of spent remaining. Life spent remaining in Jesus brings out this beautiful and deep joy. So this is another mark of a true disciple will be a deep, profound joy. And the third fruit that Jesus um, points out is an ability to build true relationships with others. Verse twelve: My command is this: Love each other as I have loved you. Again, uh, when I married Jackie. Uh, at our wedding day at, at um, St. Hilary's in Kew, and we st- stood up in front of our church family and the congregation and made our vows to each other. I went back over them uh, a few days ago, and I noticed something really fascinating about them, is that how each of those vows starts. 
My vow to Jackie was to give myself to her as her husband. And the start of her vow was to give herself to me as, 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 um, as a wife. So the first part of her promise was to give herself fully to me, and the first part of my promise is to give myself fully to her. This could be straight out of John 15. It's a promise of faithful, mutual selflessness towards each other. That is the, the bedrock of our marriage ceremony is this promise. And, it's, and this promise is, a, is just a, a mirror of the sort of relationship that God has with the Son and the Son has with His church. It flows down so that this sort of love, this mutual self-giving is what should define our relationships with everyone that we come across with. In friendship, in spouses, in family, uh, in dating. Uh, with people who are Christians in our church family and people who are not Christians in our neighborhoods and our communities. We're required to love like this, this, this selfless, loving giving of ourselves. This is not an optional extra, Jesus says. This is my command. Love others and love God, you might be implied as well. So these are the three fruits, and I think they can be summarized in one way. We could say that a true disciple is marked by this, a joyful obedience to Jesus' command to love other people. I'll say it again. A joyful obedience to Jesus' command to love others others that's how you know a real disciple how far should we go how far does this love go well jesus then goes on to say the classic and and famous uh, verse you should all know very well the greater love has no one than this that they should lay down their life for their friends this is the ultimate end of this self-giving isn't it if you if to give everything up to and including your very life that's the sort of love that jesus says is the best and the most pure and true. He says, be prepared to give all of yourself, even your very life, for God and for others. At this point, I hope we're feeling a bit uncomfortable because we know how far short of this we fall. I could say, well, amen, everyone, go and do likewise, but that wouldn't be enough, would it? Because we know we don't do this. We find this all very, very hard. I was listening to a podcast the other day called Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence is a podcast where people send in their problems, and they're always relationship problems. Uh, and this particular one on this particular podcast was uh, a woman who is having a real relational difficulty with a friend. Uh, this friend of hers was uh, married and pregnant and she had decided that she was entitled in a relationship to consistently bug the woman to do two things. One, get married, and two, get pregnant. Anyone ever had a friend like that? Yeah, probably. Uh, it's pretty common, isn't it? There's friendships uh, seem to... Often friends think that they're entitled <laughs> to try and cajole or convince or annoy someone into being like them or if it's considered to be further along the, the the social rung the social ladder to try and pull them up and it can be really really annoying and very very hurtful sometimes and this is the, this woman's problem so she phones into prudence and asks for some advice prudence's advice is quite simple drop the friend get rid of her you, d you don't need that kind of negativity in your life Get rid of her. Drop her. If 
find a new friend. As I was listening to this, I, I realized that this points to a real and deep and true problem in relationships. There's actually a problem with both of both the uh, the woman's friend, but also Prudence's advice. The problem with the woman's with friend was, yeah, yes, it's she has decided that she can exert power over her friend, and that is not mutual self-giving. That is not love. That's domination. But Prudence's advice also showed something different. She's saying a relationship is only good as as long as you're getting something good from it. But as soon as it goes sour, as soon as there's an issue, don't seek to fix the problem. Just get rid of the problem. Get another friend. So relationships then are about what you can get out of it. God's standard for relationship is loving selflessness from all sides. And yet we see from this example, and we know from our own lives, that we fail to live up to this. We Left to our own devices, we sabotage our own relationships by insisting that the primary purpose of them is self-satisfaction. Instead of selflessness, we fall prey to selfishness. And instead of joyful self-giving, we fall into bitter self-serving. I see this in my own life, going back to my marriage. Like before I got married, I thought, man, I'm going to smash this marriage thing. It's going to be such a great husband, man. I've been, just, I've been preparing for this my whole life. been in training camp, time to go. When I got married, what I found was that I was far, far more selfish than I ever imagined I was as a single. When you put in a pr- close proximity with someone, you soon you, your true self comes out. Fortunately, we read uh, Tim Keller's book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, beforehand, and we found out that this is... Uh, so we kind of knew in advance that this was going to happen, and we knew that we actually had to extend grace to each other because we would be a, each other's primary tool to not only expose the selfishness, uh, but to present the gospel to it and see it forgiven and transformed. And so that's the wonderful thing about my marriage. And we can do that for each other as well, as, as in deep uh, spiritual friendship, to expo- see each the selfishness exposed. But yet, this is the reality. Um, we, we're designed for true relationship, and yet we fail to get there. We fail in our relationship with Jesus, and we fail in our relationships with each other. So we need something to help. We need, we need a, a new pattern, but not only a new pattern, we need a new power. Okay, so my last point, the power of true relationships, and I'll finish with this. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. There are two ways to understand this statement. This could be Jesus saying, this is the standard that I expect from, from not only friendship, but just relationships in general. But he's also saying in the same breath, but you won't. You can't. You won't be able to lay down your life like this unless I lay down my life first. It wouldn't be too long until Jesus and his disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus goes off to pray and he says to his disciples, watch and pray. Just, just wait and pray for me for a little while. But they don't, they fall asleep. And three times they do this. Then Peter gets up and says, you know, Jesus, I'm going to be with you to the very end. And Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me three times. And then it happens, Jesus is taken by the Romans, he's strung up on the cross. And what happens is his friends, his truest friends, scatter. They can't bear it, they scatter in all directions. And so if even Jesus' closest would fail to love Jesus to this full extent, how likely is it that we will either? And that's why Jesus went to the cross. 
He went so that we could be given a new power to remain in Him and remain with each other in a way that is simply not possible. So that we could experience truly deep connection, Jesus became totally disconnected. The true vine was thrown onto the rubbish heap. The true son was left abandoned by his father. And the true friend was counted as an enemy. The Son of God, who for all eternity had experienced the deepest possible connection with his Father, was now utterly cast out, utterly lonely, utterly abandoned. And as he did so, he demonstrated the one true, perfectly selfless act of love to give himself fully, to lay down his life for his friends. And not only his friends, for his enemies. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He wasn't just talking about the Romans in front of him or the Jewish leaders back in the synagogue or his friends. He was, he was talking about everyone. He was talking about us. Greater lo- uh, uh, Father, forgive them. Forgive this world and their rejection of me and of you. Forgive this world of their sin for idolatry. Forgive them for they do not know what they have done. Jesus died so that all this could be undone. He died to give us new power to build a new relationship, to to remain in Him by His Holy Spirit and to remain with each other also by the Holy Spirit. To love others even when they don't love us back. And to experience a deep connection with God and with, with this family, with this church. What's the key to remaining in the vine? It's knowing this gospel. You could, you could pray all you want. You could read all the Bible all you want. You could go to church every Sunday. You could go to missional community every Tuesday night or Thursday night. And if you didn't know this gospel, it would be nothing. It would be just dirty rags. But if you know this gospel, if you know Jesus and what he's done for you, if you know what that means and how you have been fully forgiven and accepted and loved, then you can remain then you can experience true intimate connection. The sort of thing that doesn't disappoint, that doesn't fall away, that doesn't lead to dissatisfaction. If you know the gospel, you can experience true relationship. And your lives will bear fruit. You'll worship through obedient service. You'll gain an inexpressible joy and you will gain relationships of selfless love course we are still sinful right but the the more we know the gospel the more we realize how sinful we are but the very same moment we find out how gracious god is so as we discover how sinful we are we need reminding don't we we need reminding of what's true and so that's where the spiritual discipline comes in to come here on a sunday to be part of a missional community to read your bible and be saturated in god's word uh, to be prayerful to serve others, to, be God, to become gospel fluent, to speak the gospel into each other's hearts. All these things are not so that we can, uh, are not just activities to gain access to God, but because we've already gained access to God, these are our activities to maintain that relationship and to be reminded of who He is and what He's done. So friends, let us be a church that remains in Jesus, the true vine, and remains in each other through selfless giving of ourselves. And let us be 
reminded that when we fail, we are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. We are forgiven and we will be restored. Amen.